Welcome to episode 1607 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindberger of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? Doing okay. Good. Yeah. So can I say a word in defense of Mike Trout? <laughs> not uh, that, how dare you? Yeah, not that he needs me to stand up for him here, and not that anyone listening to this podcast at this point is going, Mike Trout, is that guy good? Is he the best player in baseball? <laughs> If you're still on the fence about that, let me try to coax you onto one side. So I saw a, a bad tweet a couple of days ago about Mookie Betts and Mike Trout, and it was something about how like Mookie has proved he's a winner or something, and he's the best player in baseball because he's on winning teams and Mike Trout isn't. And I don't think anyone really took that argument very seriously, and I didn't bring it up on the podcast here, but... I think now some credible sources are starting to bring up the Trout versus Betts debate, and it's a fine debate to have. It's healthy to have debate. Well, some debates, <laughs> but <laughs> I think this is one of the more benign debates that yes. uh, the country is having this week. Yes. And Joe Pesnansky wrote an article in which he claimed that Mookie Betts is now the best player in baseball. And look, Joe Pesnansky is great. The article is fine. I think uh, we're all on the same page, probably. He just chose to write this article and, and kind of frame it that way, I think mostly for the fun of the argument. And he acknowledged that it's a, a shameless hot take. He said so in the article. And he acknowledged that uh, lots of challengers to the crown of best player in baseball have come and gone and that Mike Trout has reigned supreme throughout his career. But few things come to mind. One, it's a, it's a fun debate to have, or it can be, to you know talk about is this guy the best or is that guy the best. But I do think that in Trout's case, a large part of what makes him so much fun for me is that he ends the conversation. <laughs> he ends the debate. He is so much better than everyone else that you just have to marvel at his superiority. No one else really comes close. And so if you take that away, I mean, I guess if, if there is a legitimate challenger to Trout who is as good as Trout, that's fun. If it's that Trout is declining, that's not as fun. But, no. you know, if, if there's a legitimate challenger, fine, I will entertain that. But I think a big part of what has made Trout so entertaining to me is that you can look at how he compares to everyone else and no one really compares to him. He is just uh, the best. So taking that away, I think, would rob Trout of a little bit of what makes him so special. But if someone deserves it, fine. I think I feel sort of sorry for him that he is not on this stage because I think that's why this conversation is coming up yep. because we're all watching Mookie Betts and marveling at Mookie Betts as we should be. He is incredible. He does everything really well. He is so much fun to watch. He has seemingly single-handedly turned games around for the Dodgers at times. And so we're all just appreciating Mookie Betts as we should be. That's great. And I think I said it earlier this month, but, you know, we're getting to watch Mookie. We're getting to watch Fernando Tatis. We're getting to watch all these really exciting, great players. And Trout is absent, as he is every year. And it's a bummer, because if Trout were making deep postseason runs every year, he'd be having these heroics. He'd be doing these things, and he'd right. be impressing us. And so the fact that he is never there, I think it, it leaves an opening for us to talk about the player who is excelling on that stage. And I can't imagine how he feels. I mean, granted, he didn't have to sign with the Angels to stay there forever. And if his priority really was winning, which it sort of seemed to be, maybe he could have made a better choice if, if he had gone somewhere else, because I don't think the Angels have really demonstrated that they are a well-run 
organization that is going to get him back to the promised land there. But he is locked in there, and I think that's a shame for baseball that we don't get to see him. And, you know, if he's sitting at home watching baseball, which he very well might not be, he's probably hunting or fishing or watching weather reports or football games or something. But oh, <laughs> on his behalf, I'm sorry that he does not get to play in these games and impress everyone with his skills. All of that said, Mike Trout is still better than Mookie Betts. And if you look at like single season wars, then there are definitely players who have even exceeded Mike Trout. And Mookie Betts is one of them this year. And he has been one of them before. So Mookie has the best case for sure of anyone. And if you go back to the beginning of Mookie's first season, 2015, He is by far the second best player in baseball behind Trout. And it's really Trout and then Mookie and then everyone else. There's a a separation of like eight and a half wins of of Fangraph's war between Trout and Mookie. And then there's a separation of like nine and a half wins between Mookie and the next best position player. So it's kind of like, you know, one, two, and then the field. So if you want to make the case that uh, Mookie's the, the closest challenger, he he certainly is. And this year in the abbreviated season, he had a higher war depending on which war you had. It was either a tiny bit higher or a lot higher. I think Baseball Reference had him like two wins higher. Fangraphs had him a fraction of a win higher, like 0.4 or something. So yeah, basically indistinguishable. But you know, we're like three months removed from there being an ESPN article about how Christian Yelich is now the best player in baseball. And (laughs) now after the mini season Yelich had, I don't think anyone's making that case. You know, not that Yelich is bad now or something, but it's just like if you cherry pick, if you look over any 12-month span or one season, yeah, you can find someone with a higher war, but it's just that everyone comes and goes. It's, you know, Josh Donaldson one year, or it's Mookie one year, or it's Yelich one year, and Trout is always there, and I think that's what sort of sets him apart. So if you want to make the case or prove the case that Betts is better than Trout, I think that has to be true over a period of... I don't know, two years at at least. I mean, it can't just be a three-month season and then the playoffs that Trout doesn't even get to participate in. (laughs) So, you know, not that uh, anyone is is really denigrating Mike Trout here. It's really just boosting Mookie. And for some reason, when we have these conversations, it always has to be, is this guy better than that guy? It can't just be, is this guy great? Yes, he is. (laughs) There has to be some debate or it's not very interesting. And so Trout is the foil for Mookie here. And I get it, but no, I I can't get on board with uh, even entertaining this take seriously. (laughs) I think I am a little less offended by it than you are for the following reason. I don't disagree with your analysis, Ben. I think that the difference between both Trout and Betts in terms of the value they've accrued is stark in the same way that the difference between those two guys in the field is stark. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there's much in the way of controversy, at least not at this stage. Like you said, there have been individual seasons where Betts has been a more valuable player than than Trout has been. But mm-hmm. you know, when you take their resumes in toto, there is not a ton of conversation to be had there. And I think that you know they are kind of interesting to have in conversation with one another because one of the things that we often say about Trout is that 
he, you know, he's a very complete player, right? Mm -hmm. And the value he brings to his team comes from a lot of different places. And so it is sometimes, you know, if you are not a sort of trained baseball sort, a close observer, you might miss some of it, right? It might not Mm -hmm. jump out at you in the same way that I think the bets game can at times when you bring the the defense and the base running into to the mix, you know, there is there's some flash there that I think is really that is part of what makes him so fun to watch. I think the mm-hmm. reason that I am marginally sympathetic to this, especially in in times of year like this, when the advantage because of the postseason kind of goes t- to bets, is that he is so often put in conversation with Trout to his detriment. True. I don't think that anyone is particularly keen to like bring low either of these guys. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like we Everyone are so, loves both of them. Yeah, yeah, and we are so fortunate to get to watch them. And I think that you're right, that the the fact that the gaps are what they are is liberating in some ways because, you know, I think most people who look at baseball the way we do are not so fussy to to deny that if there's a half a win difference between two players in a given season that like you know the the stat isn't so fine that mm-hmm. they that they might not just be the same right yeah. um you know we understand what the error bars are on war so uh, particularly on the defensive side of things so i think that you know the contrast can be somewhat liberating because we don't have to get into this like grubby half a win here a th- third of a win there we can just right. appreciate them right because they are different they are the same in many ways but they are i think the thing that unifies both trout and bets is that like we are clearly watching two future or hall of fame players play on the field in real time and what a treat that is what a delight yeah. as we talked about on the last episode we now get to watch bets just like firmly ensconced in an organization that is going to be playoff relevant for a long, long, long time. And we Mm -hmm. hope that the Angels can kind of right the ship and find some starting pitching and put Trout in a similar position. But I'm going to grant Mookie his moment because so often during the regular season, he is the you know the second fiddle in a way mm-hmm. or at least for a certain slice of the um the baseball community and so i'm okay with him having some shine in a moment where he is just the undisputed most fun player to watch in the world series but yes i i think that the whole thing can get can get a little silly and i wish that we were better culturally but certainly within baseball at finding a way to put a player's accomplishments in context without them needing a foil or a heel to sort of be juxtaposed against so Mm -hmm. i share your frustration there but i think it's okay for Mookie to have his moment. Yeah, he has the stage to himself right now. Trout is not present, and so Mookie gets to show off, and we're all really bowled over. I'm not trying to make a bowling pun, but I, <laughs> I guess I did unintentionally, but we're, you know, bowled over by his skills, and he's demonstrated every one of them. And I think that's an interesting point that Joe makes that the argument for Mookie over Trout 
is now sort of an echo of the argument for Trout over Miguel Cabrera. Yeah. You know, seven or eight years ago, it's not as extreme, but you are making the case now that Mookie is the better all-around player and that Trout is the better offensive player. And I think that's true. Trout is definitely, I think, by far a better hitter, even in Mookie's good seasons. I guess not in his MVP year, but other than that, even in his MVP year by WRC+, Trout was still better. So Trout just, you know, he walks more, he hits for more power, even when Mookie is hitting for more power. So he has the edge there, but I think you can make a, a very good case that Mookie has the edge everywhere else, that he has been a better base runner. We've certainly seen that on display this month. and. Yeah. I think fielding-wise, Trout gets extra points, I guess, for being a center fielder, but Mookie could and probably should be a center fielder and would be if he had come up in a different place at a different time, if he hadn't been playing next to Jackie Bradley all those years, if he didn't then move to a team that had Gold Glover, Cody Bellinger on it, he would probably be playing center, and as it is, he's like an all-time great right fielder, so he's still offering a, a ton of defensive value. And, you know, he's been fairly durable for the most part, maybe a little bit more so than Trout even in recent years. So, yeah, Mookie is uh, he's great. He's wonderful. And I think the personality enters into it a little bit mm-hmm. and just how his skills leap off the screen at you. And we've talked over the years about how Trout doesn't really impress you at first glance as often that he is just this perfect baseball playing machine he never really makes mistakes he does everything well but on individual plays unless he's say robbing a a home run which Mookie can do too clearly he doesn't necessarily leap off the screen the way that uh, Tatis does or you know someone who has these skills that are just immediately apparent like Trout's plate discipline is yeah. an incredible skill, but it's not quite as visually compelling, perhaps. But I think Mookie is very visually compelling and maybe even more so because he's a, a compact person by Major League Baseball player standards. And yet he is so great and he does these incredibly athletic things. And just personality-wise, I, I think he is a, a little more engaging than Trout, perhaps. He's he's just, he's adorable. I mean, Trout is, uh, he's a very likable guy, seems like a very wholesome, polite, nice guy. It's like he's transplanted from the 50s or something, <laughs> except like he doesn't even go to nightclubs or anything that like newspaper reporters in the 50s didn't report. I mean, I don't know what Trout <laughs> does in his spare time, but it seems like he just uh, hits golf balls or watches Eagles games or something like I'm not getting the sense that there's a like scandal there that's hidden although you never know with anyone but I think between that and the fact that Mookie is just uh you know he just seems like such a a fun person to be around and and kind of has that infectious nature to him and is maybe a, a little more outspoken in some respects I mean like the the number one personality characteristic of Mike Trout that we all know is that he likes the weather which is like the thing that people cite as if you have nothing to talk about, you talk about the weather. It's like the most boring topic imaginable. And it's the most entertaining thing about Trout that he likes the weather. So I have come to really appreciate the fact that he has that sort of personality where he is just like this Captain America, like doesn't do anything wrong, doesn't really say all that much most of the time. I've come to value that in a way, but he's definitely not quotable most of the time in the no. same way. So if uh, like if you want to make the case that like Mookie is 
I don't know, like a, a different word than best player if he is like the signature player of this time or, or something like that because he's been in two World Series in three years and because, you know, he's been on these great teams and, you know, he's he stood out in some ways that Trout doesn't. So I can go along with you on that, I suppose. But when it comes to pure who is better at baseball, I think Mookie still has a bit of work to do to uh, get me to really entertain that idea. Well, and I think that this is part of where we lose out on something by always having these value discussions as a conversation between two players because, you know, I find Trout's personality to be endearing i find you know and we should be clear i'm gonna speak for you like mookie butts seems to be pretty captain america e in his own yeah. in his own mm-hmm. respect right he is we are fortunate that both of these guys who are so good and have have really led the way in terms of position player performance over their careers are they just seem like good dudes who their mm-hmm. teammates really love playing with yep. i think that You know, Butts occupied a really important place in the conversation around Black Lives Matter and social justice this summer. Mm -hmm. And so like his willingness to to do that and also to talk about sort of his own personal evolution on those questions, I think is really valuable. And we we just lose some of that when it becomes this like, you know, push your glasses up your nose, get get out Mm -hmm. the calculator kind of a thing. So yeah, I I share I share your frustration at the sort of form that this discourse always takes because then it becomes about these really uninteresting to most people sort of niche add up the wars yeah and 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 then we're losing we're losing so much we're losing the ability to marvel at what these guys do on the field we're losing sight of who they are as people and Mm -hmm. and sort of the very real impact they have on sort of popularizing the sport and giving multiple good faces to baseball you know i Mm -hmm. think we've talked before about how like that that always seems to be the thing that we forget when we have these who's the face of baseball conversations it's like no the the power thing here is that there are, are multiple players who can fit that depending on right. what you find interesting and compelling as a fan and that's so that's so wonderful that that's the way that the sport could be thought of if we could just talk about this a little bit differently so yeah, yeah. it's like let's you know and it's probably good for baseball if there can be a debate. Probably like yeah. people like <laughs> these sorts of debates. Yeah, so they do. if uh, if all you say is you know, look at the war leaderboard, like it, it might be right, but it's not very fun. No. So if you can have this debate and it's like a credible debate to have, and and either answer is like an all time great player who is yeah. like a, a great ambassador for the game then that's not a bad thing. I yeah. mean, you know, the more we talk about these two players, probably the better. And yeah. I don't know that athletes should be obligated to be role models or that it's fair to expect them all to be role models, but I can't imagine really two better role yeah. models than, than these two. So yeah. it's pretty cool that we have both of them. And, yeah. and, you know, like, I guess maybe people tend to think of, Mookie as as younger than Trout. I mean, he is younger than Trout, and and he came along a few years later. He didn't debut as young. He's really only like a year younger than Trout. Yeah. He's you know a year and a few months. So if you wanted to make the case that like well Trout has been better, but Mookie is overtaking him or something, you know they're they're at basically the same point in their career 
aging curve wise. So I don't know that you can make that case about Mookie. I mean, you could make it about Acuna or or Soto Mm -hmm. or one of the even younger guys who is theoretically not even in his prime yet, but just uh, pointing out that the age difference there is not as big as the seasons played difference would suggest. So right. Anyway, they're both wonderful, and I guess that should probably be the takeaway from this segment. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want to bring up uh, some some Yachty controversy from his Instagram this week? Yeah. So I don't want to like belabor this because I think there was just sort of a – seems to have been a misunderstanding on his part and then, you know, it kind of – a controversy that I just will continue to find very silly generally. But Yadier Molina was was disappointed. He was not a finalist for the Gold Glove Award this year, the Rawlings Gold Glove Award, which he attributed to some desire on the part of shadowy figures mm-hmm. to keep him from tying Johnny Bench for the NL record. Mm-hmm. And so that's would be quite quite an allegation, except that this year the process for determining the gold glove was different than it has been in prior years. Generally, what what they will do is combine Sabres defensive index with votes from managers and coaches. And this year, the decision was made to to simply opt for a statistical assessment of, of players. Mm. And so unless the numbers have it out for Riyadi, mm-hmm. there was no shadowy conspiracy here. Mm-hmm. But it has led to a, a conversation about the nature of this award in a season where uh, we only have a 60-game sample. I think that every analytic sort will tell you that's, that even one-year defensive metrics have a great deal of noise in them and that mm-hmm. um, you know you really need a couple of seasons of a guy's performance to have a, a good statistical understanding of his defense. And I think that most public-facing analysts will tell you that the the gap in understanding between public metrics and team side stuff uh, when it comes to defense is probably the widest of anywhere else in in baseball. Mm-hmm. And so there's just, you know, I think that they give you a good indicator. And I think that um, some of them are better at assessing particular kinds of things than others. But I think we'll all acknowledge the limitations here. And so I think that that's just a bummer that there was a lack of understanding here because, I, you know, like nobody's out to get no one's mm-hmm. out to get Yadi. No, I don't think so. And, you know, I guess I don't really expect Yadi or Molina to know exactly how the, the gold gloves <laughs> are awarded right. this year, which is different. You know, I don't expect him to be looking at the stats or up on top of that. I mean, he is won how many nine of them so yes he probably thinks well i i won them before it's the same sort of process i'm just as good as i ever was i'm sure he thinks that i don't know if he is at 38 but uh, he probably thinks that and so he thinks he's probably as deserving as ever and uh i think he's still good he's still a a capable catcher clearly you know implying that people were not voting for him because they wanted Johnny Bench to retain this NL record, the NL Gold Gloves Awards record, which I don't know, it's not really a, a sacred record, I don't think. And suggesting that uh, people didn't want a, a Puerto Rican player to win it. I mean, I, I wouldn't discount that uh, there is some prejudice in baseball, certainly, but it is maybe relevant that Ivan Rodriguez is a, a Puerto Rican player and has the most gold gloves ever. Right. Maybe this is just a manifestation of Yadi's 
attitude and competitiveness and drive and what makes him so good. Like I I think he rankles people sometimes with his comments, but maybe this is just a reflection of the fact that he wants to be the best and like prides himself on being the best. And so players are, are not always uh, that honest about whether their skills have slipped or not. Right. And maybe don't always agree with the stats, but that can be an advantage, you know, for them to believe in themselves, I guess, and and to have maybe even a a too great self-confidence because it helps them do this incredibly competitive job with all the pressures that come with it. They have to be armored with this belief that they're the best. And, you know, if you've been as good for as long as Yachty has, then I guess you're entitled to maybe have a, a slightly inflated sense of how good you still are. I don't know. You know, there are some great players who have difficulty accepting that their skills have slipped and others do not. They very gracefully age into that latter portion of their career. But Yachty is still, I think, good defensively and, and still certainly has the respect of his pitchers and everyone around baseball. So it's not as if uh, you watch him and he can't hack it anymore. Right. And I think some of the concern this year, my understanding, I'm not suggesting this was necessarily a good or a bad decision, but I think that part of the concern this year was that given the shortened slate and the fact that there was going to be artificially fewer teams that managers and coaches saw because of how the divisions were geographically constituted this year, that that reputation, not of Molina specifically, but of players generally, would sort of color manager and coach votes because they won't have seen as many guys as they typically would. And so there was a desire to try to hew to something that is a bit more objective. Now, I think that the folks at Sabre would tell you and at every stat site would tell you that there is, in a 60-game sample, just going to be a tremendous amount of noise. But I think that the idea behind trying to reach out for some sort of objective standard is a reasonable one. Can I use this just as an opportunity to voice a small pet peeve and ask for us to all have a better conversation? Mm -hmm. So, folks, I think it's really important to remember when citing first-base defensive metrics specifically first base defensive war, that there is a positional adjustment applied to first base. There's a positional adjustment to to all of the positions, but (laughs) one should remember that, you know, first base pretty low on the defensive spectrum Mm -hmm. has a a positional adjustment applied to it. There are metrics that you can look at specific to defense that do not have that positional adjustment applied to them. So if one is is wanting to get a sense of a first baseman's defense without that positional adjustment, which is necessary for understanding their place on sort of a value spectrum. You can look at things like DRS or UZR or UZR 150. And so I would just, you know, if you are a writing person, a person who writes about baseball for a living, I think it's helpful to remind your readers of the positional adjustment because I think it can be very confusing for folks who are not super familiar with war as a metric and then they have a kind of warped sense of what's at play there and sort of the relative scale and how these guys might stack up near one another if you're only looking at first baseman. And I would also just really invite everyone to not be super fussy about 60 games worth of defensive metrics. Anyhow, Mm -hmm. because we have so much else to be fussy about, Ben. (laughs) 
Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jackie Bradley quote tweeted something uh, about uh, someone else tweeted that he was tied with Lewis Robert for the most outs above average, according to StatCast, among MLB center fielders. And he didn't win a gold glover. I don't think he was a, a finalist. So it depends what stats you use. In theory, the StatCast based stats should be maybe a little more telling in small samples, but right. they also depend somewhat on your opportunities and what right. staff you're working behind. And did you happen to have some balls hit to you that you could catch that most other people wouldn't have caught? So it's a small sample season. And we both struggled with that, I think, because we both voted for the Fielding Bible Awards yes. two or three weeks ago. And that was tough, too. And yeah. There were some adjustments to those awards, like we only voted for five players at each position instead of 10. Which, thank the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, because it takes forever. (laughs) But also in this year, yeah, there there weren't big statistical separations between those players. Yeah, my my concern was the lack of statistical separation and not the time, like to be clear. Of course that was it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Kiermeyer also complained, by the way. Jason Stark tweeted that Kiermeyer said he was upset and disappointed about not being a Gold Glove finalist. He said, if it's solely based on computers and numbers, I don't know what numbers that computer was looking at, but I believe they got it wrong. Again, as you said, not surprising that an entirely stat-based system would fail to satisfy everyone after a 60-game season. I do think the addition of the stats to the Gold Glove voting has helped in recent years. You don't usually get the really ridiculous ones anymore and the ones that are just entirely reputation-based. And the Gold Glove voting definitely matches up with the numbers much better than it used to, which I suppose doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. But if you believe that the defensive stats have some validity, as I do then it should mean that. So I think gold glove voting has improved on the whole. It's just that it was sort of set up to fail or at least to piss people off this season. Also, while we're talking about Yachty, like in the early playoff games when Yachty was playing, I forget which channel it was and which broadcaster it was and maybe it was more than one, but people were going on and on about how like stat heads don't respect Molina or like advocating for him as a Hall of Fame player and suggesting that, you know, Sabermetrics doesn't say he's a Hall of Fame player. And like, yeah, according to some stats and some past value metrics, that's true. But since they have taken into account framing and more aspects of catcher defense, now he stacks up as a very deserving Hall of Famer, at least according to Baseball Prospectus, fan graphs. If you go to Baseball Reference, which still doesn't include framing, then he would be lower. But right now, I mean, he's like uh, basically on the border of being a top 10 catcher of all time, according to fan graphs war. He will probably retire as a top 10 catcher of all time. So I will have a a Hall of Fame vote in theory when he comes up for induction, and I, I will think about it more than I have to this point, but I don't think I would have any qualms about voting for him because if by the best stats we have, he is uh, seemingly a a pretty deserving catcher. And, you know, like having uh, about 55 wins above replacement as he has right now for a catcher, that's really good because, you know, you think of 60 as, as maybe like the standard for some positions, but for catchers, they don't play as many games. They don't have as much opportunity to accumulate war. So that's a, a really great figure for catchers. Now, there will be some other interesting conversations to be had, and I've written about this, but like right in the vicinity of Yachty, you have Brian McCann and Russell Martin, who yeah. are also right there as like, you know, close to top 10 catchers of all time. 
most people would not think of them as that. And that is uh, largely because of framing. And so you have to decide what to do with that because we don't have those sensitive framing stats for most of baseball history. We have some that are based not on the pitch tracking technologies, but just on like pitch by pitch stats. And that goes back to 1988. And before that, I've seen, you know, some estimates of historical framing just based on like walks and strikeouts and that sort of thing. But it gets a lot less precise. And so if you were a great framer in those days, probably you would not receive the credit for it via war that you can today. And so you could argue that Martin, McCann, Molina, those guys are somewhat inflated by that in a way that maybe earlier catchers should have been and, and don't get the benefit right. of that. So it's it's kind of tough when you compare across eras. But I think the fact that Yadi is right there, and I do take into account the fact that everyone thinks that he is doing something that doesn't show up in the numbers. Yeah. And I've tried to look into that before. I've tried to quantify like, okay, what does he actually do differently when it comes to calling pitches compared to his backups, you know, when his backups ever get to play. And it's it's hard to tell, but when pitcher after pitcher after pitcher says, you know, he's the greatest and he makes me better, I take that into account. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to discount that. I think it's possible because we saw with framing that that was something that was not quantified until fairly recently, and it turns out it had a huge effect. So I would not discount the possibility that there is a, a similar effect for pitch calling or working with pitchers in in some less tangible way and so if you compare you know how pitchers performed with Yachty to how they performed with his backups or with catchers on other teams I would not be surprised to see that there is a, a bigger difference there than the stats are giving him credit for like you know there are some examples where people say oh you had to see him play and you can't appreciate him if you didn't see him play or you have to take into account what players said about them and I'm skeptical of that but I think Yadi probably has the best case among contemporary players for yeah. like everyone in the game seems to think that he is doing things that the stats don't fully capture and right. I'm not going to say he's like you know 30 wins or 40 wins better or something than Moore says but like if you want to bump him up a little bit absolutely and you don't even have to really bump him up to get him into Hall of Fame territory. Yeah, I, I think that particularly when it comes to catcher as a position where there is so much that we want to be able to quantify in terms of value and we can't yet, that we all just, well, I don't know that we all do this, but I think that it's a position to approach with a good bit of analytical humility. Yeah. And I think that we're hopefully getting better at that as a collective. And so I think that you're absolutely right that there's a lot more to consider here. And while, you know, reputations can sometimes be unearned and or, you know, inflated, I think mm -hmm. that his is so sterling among his peers. And, you know, I'm reticent to say that like baseball people don't know what they're seeing. I don't mm -hmm. know if they are always good at translating what they see to like the war scale. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't want to tell a person whose job it is to do baseball really well at a professional level all day that they're like totally off base with something like that. So I think that there's a lot to be said for just acknowledging what we don't know. And this is a position where that is particularly true, given what we'd like to be able to say definitively about game calling and just can't. Mm -hmm. So right. there's that part of it. And his frustration, like I don't want to give Yadi a hard time. I think that his frustration with this 
particular award, you know, denotes some misunderstanding of the process at play this year, but I think also probably speaks to a larger concern among players that, you know, I think that we're pretty good about helping. I don't say that like, that sounds so patronizing to say helping. I think that Mm -hmm. analysts have gotten a lot better about how they communicate with players around advanced stats and the value that looking at baseball a particular way can bring. And it would not surprise me given how divergent some of the public facing metrics are and how much work there is to do on that side of things. If there is a lot of frustration among players around defensive metrics in a way that is, I think, probably a little harder to break through on than it is with a player's contribution either at the plate or on the mound, um, Mm -hmm. just because so much is determined by your opportunities and your positioning and, you know, that's the positioning obviously not being completely relevant for a catcher, but just in general, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, I think it is a, an area where I would not be surprised if there is work still to be done at sort of bridging that gap in terms of, of communication. So Mm -hmm. I hope that that this stops bothering Yachty, Mm -hmm. although to your point, I think the competitive drive necessary to do what he does year after year, you know, if I had to crouch for three and a half hours during <laughs> yeah. most of my workday at 38, I'd just be dead. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I just would be dust. I'd be a pile of dust with a mouth talking on top. So, um, you know, it takes a special kind of kind of breed and um i'm glad that we found a way to have a productive conversation about this so that it was not just a sneaky opportunity for me to implore people to read about positional adjustments <laughs> yeah. and then tell your tell your friends and readers all about them and i think there have been sabermetric sorts who have sort of sure. slighted yadi in the past for all i know yeah. i have i don't really recall but when the stats didn't give him the credit that they currently do you could point to his offense, which is not fantastic, and say that he's been a, a below-average hitter for his career, which barely he has a 99 career WRC plus. And you know, if you have a, if you're basically a league-average hitter and you're maybe the best defensive catcher in baseball over the course of your career, and you play a, a million games, I think that is uh, that's pretty much a Hall of Fame career right there. It's not like he's Omar Vizquel offensively or something. Like he's had a lot of really excellent offensive seasons not even just great for a a gold glove catcher but just really good period so I think there's like kind of that that culture clash where it comes to like sabermetrics discounting Yachty versus uh, old school baseball types saying the numbers aren't capturing what he's doing I think the numbers have gotten closer and so now the gap is not as great to bridge but I think because people attribute such almost mystical powers of like leadership and pitcher whispering to Yachty. I think there's some natural skepticism, but if you just say, well, it's not on the stat page, so it doesn't exist. I think that is taking it too far in the other direction. So there has to be some middle ground. And, you know, I think where war stands right now, at least at Fangraphs, is probably a pretty good middle ground where everyone can agree. This is a, a Hall of Famer and maybe you can, differ on whether he is uh, the greatest of the great Hall of Famers or whether he is just a a qualifying Hall of Famer, but he's great either way, and I think we can all probably agree on that now. Yeah. I will say, though, that in that Jackie Bradley tweet, he tweeted, I just don't understand, and I have yet to have anyone from any analytics department explain to me how they calculate the numbers, or better yet, how can you physically improve on them as a player? 
And if that's true, if no one has ever had that conversation with Jackie Bradley, that seems like something maybe the Red Sox should address. I mean, I don't know if Jackie Bradley has a a whole lot of room for improvement defensively because he's really good at that already. So I can understand why that wouldn't have been the top priority for the Red Sox front office to say, hey, let's talk to Jackie Bradley about being good at defense. He's, He's already great. But hopefully that team and and all teams have some sort of intermediary there, and and most of them do, I think, now, where if a player wants that information or can benefit from that information in some way, there is someone who can communicate it to them. So maybe the Red Sox do, and, and it just hasn't been passed on to Bradley because he hasn't really needed that particular advice. I mean, they've had Brian Bannister and and they've had uh, other people who are passing along those insights, at least on the pitching side. So, but that's something that if a player feels like they don't understand the numbers or they don't have someone on their team who can help support them with the numbers, that would be something to address. I would think. Yeah, I agreed. All right. So I did want to just briefly bring up Jeff Lunau, which I'm almost reluctant to do (sighs) because who wants to talk about Jeff Lunau? It's the World Series. But Jeff Lunau sort of thrust himself back into the conversation this week. Almost immediately, as soon as the Astros were eliminated, he uh, sort of started, I I guess, what he hoped would be a a campaign to rehabilitate himself in baseball and maybe get a job back. Uh, I don't know. Maybe his motivation is just uh, he's, you know, firing some shots at the people who kicked him out or something. But I would think that he was trying to make himself more presentable as a job candidate now that his suspension is about to be over. And if so, I think it backfired pretty terribly because uh, he came out on this uh, Houston TV interview KPRC, and he essentially said and reiterated that he had no knowledge of the sign-stealing scheme. He implied that MLB was just kind of looking for a fall guy, and he said the investigation interviewed dozens and dozens of people, players, video, staff members, coaches, etc. None of them said that I knew the absence of any facts regarding me speak very loudly. I mean, they went through years and years of emails and text, voicemails, messages, and documents, and there's nothing in there that suggests that I knew, and if I were involved, there would be something somewhere, and it just didn't exist. So he suggested that uh, they were kind of looking for a scapegoat, that they almost framed him or, or you know, made him the, the public face of this in a way that he didn't deserve, that he didn't know about it, and he sort of pointed at the finger at unnamed members of the Astros organization who were more responsible, he says, who are still employed, which uh, seems to be true. We, we talked about that last year or, or early this year, it seems like many years ago, that uh, not all of the Astros employees who were implicated in MLB's report lost their jobs. Right. So, you know, it's true that some of them have continued to be employed by the Astros. But we've seen now that uh, people from the league have fired back at Lunau. Clearly, they are not happy with this suggestion. They don't seem to like Lunau. And so all of these anonymous sources are coming out of the woodwork to say, no, this guy's full of it and are making him look, I think, even worse and more guilty than he did before. So Evan Drellick at The Athletic wrote this article, Sources, MLB's Astros investigation showed Lunau's awareness of sign stealing. And no one from the league goes on record here, but... 
I will quote from Evan here. People with knowledge of the investigation said that, quote, there was direct testimony that Luna was aware of the sign-stealing scheme. The League's Department of Investigations, headed by former federal prosecutors, gathered a combination of direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, and testimony that a source said would hold up in a legal forum, despite Luna's suggestion to the contrary. This is a quote. Lunau received emails that put him on notice of the activity, but claims he only read parts of the emails, even though he responded to the emails, the person said. One witness clearly stated and provided evidence that Lunau knew, and others identified facts indicating that Lunau knew. The best interpretation of the evidence is that Lunau either knew exactly what the video room was doing or knew generally what they were doing and willfully chose to keep himself in the dark. And Lunau said he got access to these 22,000 text messages from an employee in the Astros video room, and doesn't seem like anyone is entirely clear on how he got access to those, and he is claiming that there's nothing in there that implicates him. But I think we haven't seen that evidence in that correspondence, so it's a he said, they said in that sense, but I think it's almost irrelevant because whether he knew or not, he's responsible. And I think uh, Rob Manfred made that clear in his sign-stealing memo that predated this scandal, that he was going to hold GMs or top baseball operations executives accountable for this. And so Lunau, it, it seems like, did not communicate those new rules adequately or didn't have adequate oversight. So even if he didn't know, then he is still ultimately the the person who I think is responsible for that. I guess you could say Jim Crane maybe should have been too and and wasn't really held responsible, although he at least owns the team and, and suffered some slight penalties because of that. But I think because of that and because of this supposed evidence that exists, I got to say Luno didn't really make himself look better here, not that he was a sympathetic figure to begin with, but Rob Manfred responded to these comments on an ESPN radio interview on Tuesday, and for once, I gotta say, I I think uh, Rob Manfred is is maybe the person people would side with here, which is, it's tough to do. That's a reflection on just how unsympathetic Lunau is, that you read Rob Manfred's comments about this, and you're like, yeah, you're right, Rob. How often does that happen? But Manfred said in this interview, the 22,000 electronic messages that Jeff talked about over and over again were a fraction of the evidence in the case. There was a lot of other evidence, electronic testimonial, which indicated Jeff's culpability in this matter. And then Manfred went on to say whether he knew exactly what was going on or not is really beside the point. I wrote to all the GMs. I put them on notice that it was their obligation to make sure that their organizations were not violating any of the sign-stealing rules. I think it's pretty clear from the facts that Mr. Lunau failed to discharge the obligation. He damaged the game, and as a result, he was disciplined. And uh, some other people who worked under Lunau said to Drellick, he should just be quiet. Lunau, that is. <laughs> <laughs> like Lunau said in the interview, why is it all on me? Yeah, because uh, yeah, like, you were the GM, buddy. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, to what extent he was like directly responsible or like the culture he created enabled this, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Like clearly players were responsible, coaches were responsible. A GM doesn't know about all of those things typically, but it was uh, his show ultimately. So, you know, if he wants to come out and, and say, like, there's a version of this interview where he accepts that responsibility and says, you know, like, I, I still maintain my ignorance of, of some of this. Like, if, if he wants to try to 
clear his name of part of it while copping to the fact that he should be blamed and that it was fair to suspend him and all that, fine, but seems like he's more interested in kind of saying why me and you know why am I the person who gets held responsible here and look at what MLB is doing and look at these other people who are still employed there like not that MLB handled this situation perfectly or anything like there's there's blame to go around here but if his goal was to come out and you know make himself hireable again I don't think this helped he might be hired anyway but I, I don't think this helped I have a couple of things to say about this. Ben, here's my first thing, because we'll focus on the sign-stealing part of that because I think it's the most germane to the moment, and I think we'll end up dictating his employability. But I would like to have a World Series where I don't have to revisit the the Brandon (laughs) Taubman incident. Yeah. Stop it, Jeff. Yeah, it's like the Astros just lost. We were spared seeing the Astros in the World Series, but yep. now we're we're talking about them, which uh, I guess it's it's my choice here to bring this up. But you know, it became news yeah. because uh, Lou now inserted himself into yeah. the conversation at a yeah. time when we just want to watch like the Rays and the Dodgers, really. Yeah, and and almost certainly, I don't know Jeff Lou now. <laughs> I don't know Jeff Lou now, so I can't say this for sure, but my strong suspicion is that he was like, what's the most inconvenient moment for Rob Manfred for me to talk about this? Is it, be too, bef- yeah. is it the day before the World Series starts? Great, book it. Mm-hmm. So that's my suspicion there. I think that I'm not actually totally sure if Jeff Lunau wants to work in baseball again. Yeah, The I most chilling part of this entire interview, candidly, <laughs> was when he said... What I realize is that the opportunity to apply business practices and analytics and technology and to really modernize a sports organization the way I helped modernize the Cardinals and the Astros, that exists in every sport. That's the most chilling part of this interview. (laughs) He's he's metastasizing. He's going to go from one sport to the next. Yeah. So that's the most concerning part of this. I now shudder. (laughs) The Seahawks will hire him. Oh, God. Oh, Ben. What an evil thought. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry uh, to put that out there in the universe. Wow. No, they, they'll they never do that. They're committed to being anti-analytics, and for once, that's, that's protecting me and my feelings. No, I think that it's not clear to me that he wants to work in baseball again, but let's assume for a moment that he does, because I think that that lens is, is useful when analyzing this. I don't understand why he thinks the argument that he advanced here for his own employability is a compelling one, because I agree with you. I find it wildly unlikely that Lunau was not only briefed, but well aware of what was going on. But if I were a baseball team owner and I were were sitting there going, who should my next smart GM be? Mm-hmm. I would not find the argument that there was such wild disregard for my own authority that not only were players and coaches on my team, but also direct reports within baseball operations so indifferent to my directives that they orchestrated one of the largest scandals in baseball history (laughs) without my knowledge, a compelling argument to bring that person into a leadership position. (laughs) And this, to your point, has always been the problem with what Lou now says the buck has to stop somewhere and you have to take responsibility for failures of this kind. And there is an element of that that is a bummer if you are truly an ignorant and innocent party, but it is part of the job. And I will say for Lunau, 
you know, he didn't he does not appear to have a particularly robust model in Jim Crane for taking organizational responsibility. So he is hardly alone yeah. within the Houston Astros for deflecting where possible. But if I owned a team and was on the market for a new GM, I would not pick the person who either couldn't control my subordinates or had good control of them, but such disregard for the rules of the game and those individuals' own reputations that I would want to bring him into to mm -hmm. the org. It's a very bad look to only manage up and to disregard the long-term well-being of the people below you. And yes, I think we all wish that some more junior people within the Astros organization had said, hey, this is a bad idea and we shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And had called up the league and said, um, I have a very awkward confession to make. But they didn't do that. And ultimately, that's uh, Lunau's responsibility, whether he knew or didn't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't think that this helped his cause in any kind of appreciable way. I don't know that if he had gone on TV and said, you know, I made a terrible mistake in not creating a culture of accountability and rule following. And, you know, I hope to one day work in baseball again, but this taught me some really valuable and painful lessons. I don't know if that shifts, like moves the needle on his ability to get a senior position with an org again, but mm -hmm. I think it probably does more than this. <laughs> I say that and the worst case scenario, Ben, is not that he ends up being involved in the Seattle Seahawks in some way, although that would be personally painful for me. What if Jeff Lunau ends up in the Angels' orbit? That's oh the worst case scenario. I don't mm. say that like I have any special insider knowledge, but you know, mm. I'm yeah. just thinking of openings. So Yes, right. But yeah, I think that this interview further underscores the difference in how how Luna was individually perceived within baseball circles versus how AJ Hinch was personally perceived within baseball circles because he is exhibiting much of the behavior, you know, sort of a willingness to throw others under the bus or cast them off entirely in order to advance goals that are personal to him that I think helped to inform some of the decisions he made around scouting personnel and, you know, I don't think that this helps to endear him to anyone in mm -hmm. baseball, especially junior people who just spent the entire summer terrified for their jobs and often on the wrong end of right. ownership decisions. So I wouldn't want to work for Jeff Lunau, and I would be surprised if there were a ton of people who work on the team side who came away from this interview being like, that Jeff, he's our guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. All right. Well, probably enough said about Mr. Lunau, as Rob Manfred calls him. So maybe we can end on a kind of a weird, fun question about the World Series. This is from Webb, a Patreon supporter of ours, who emailed this question. I was talking about the playoffs with my non-baseball fan wife. I said that they're playing the series without any breaks, seven games in a row. This was one of the earlier series. She took this to mean that they were literally playing all of the games in a row. Like you finish game one, maybe take an hour break, and then start game two. If this were the way it was done, how would things be different? My prediction, more two-way players, no offense in game six and seven if the series gets there because everyone is so tired, lots of position players pitching, and Hong Kong airport-style nap pods in the dugout. 
So if you were to do this, if you were to play a best of seven series nonstop, you could cram a whole World Series into one day if you wanted to. I guess uh, if the series went seven and all the games were long, maybe it would uh, slightly creep over 24 hours if you had some breaks between games. But you could basically get a whole series in, in one day. There's no reason to want to do this. I don't think there's any no. upside to doing this. It would be terrible. However, if you were to do it, if it were just a, a slog to the end of the series, just a test of endurance, the Rays and the Dodgers would be two of the teams best equipped to do this because they do have pitching depth and because you have 28-man rosters right now. The Dodgers have 15 pitchers on their World Series roster, so they could conceivably do it. Like if you had, I, I guess you, you would have to designate seven different starters. I mean, mean, the series may not go seven games, but that part wouldn't be all that weird or that different. Like if the series only went four or five games, you might not notice that much of a difference because you just have a, a different rested starter to start each of those games. And bullpen would be an issue. You'd definitely have to have your starters go deep into games. I guess it would be possible, like if you had a reliever pitch in game one, could you bring back that reliever in game seven, which would be like roughly a day later, like uh, you could send them off to take a nap during games uh, three and four or something. Uh, Might be tough to nap while your team is playing World Series games, but if you could do that somehow, then they could come back refreshed for game seven. Like, I guess it wouldn't be all that different from a, a reliever who pitches like in a night game and then comes back to pitch in a day game the next day. The the total time elapsed would not be that different. So it's conceivable that pitchers could come back on extremely short rest, no rest really. I don't know, it would be like zero days rest, but six games rest somehow. But I think you could you could do that. But if you had like uh, the, the Rays and Dodgers, you just keep trotting out different levers in each game. And as Webb mentions, everyone would be exhausted by the end of it. I think if you got to game six and seven, that would be where you'd have issues because like you'd have to have the same starters come back and and they wouldn't be able to go so i don't know how you get through game six and seven unless you just really ration your innings in those early games and just there's no good way to do that i don't think even with expanded rosters so you'd end up with like dead tired pitchers dead tired everyone i think Probably there would be scoring because the pitchers would be so exhausted or you'd have to have position player pitchers or something. This would be terrible baseball, but you could do it, I think. But Ben. Yes. How, uh, but Ben, think of how many catchers you'd have to carry. Oh, catchers. You'd yeah, have to problem. carry You'd have to carry a, a bushel, a peck of yeah. catchers because yeah. by game... I think you would start to see shifting around and legs falling off mm-hmm. by the fourth game. You'd find guys just like who suddenly don't have legs back there by yeah, the fourth game. And yeah. I think that we are under, I mean, yes, everyone would be fatigued. That would be a thing that would exist for everybody. But I think we're perhaps discounting the the effect and maybe the immediacy of that effect on position players because... I think that the technical term for this is phonetic paraphasia. Do you ever have the experience, Ben, when you are very tired, 
which you never are because you don't sleep. That is a different conversation and a different concern. I'd just be always tired. <laughs> it's one of those two. Yeah. Do you ever have the experience when you're very, very tired and you're writing and you will write the word right as in right and wrong instead of right as in to write down a, uh, a fact? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever experience that? Yeah, I've, I've had that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that is a phenomenon called phonetic paraphasia. I, I learned mm. what this word was because um, Amanda Mole of the Atlantic was tweeting about this being a thing that happens to her and has happened to me. And I was so happy to know what it is called because as she noted in her initial tweet on this, it is impossible to Google what this is. And some <laughs> some lovely person told her what the term is for this phenomenon. I don't know what the baseball equivalent of that is, but yeah. I find that that happens to me when I have had maybe two bad nights of sleep in a row. Mm -hmm. And so I think we would see mental mistakes in the field. I think it yeah. would happen much more quickly than you're anticipating because of how bone tired these guys would be after playing four baseball games in a row. The game four would be a nightmare show. Just <laughs> yeah. an absolute disaster. That would be where we would start to see it. And I don't think it would be limited to fielding mistakes. I think that your, you know, your eyes would start to droop. You wouldn't mm -hmm. see the ball as well out of the hand. Your hand-eye coordination would deteriorate because I think your reaction times would slow at the plate because you're tired. Yeah. I think this would be, it would end baseball. I think that people would watch the back half of that World Series and say, I don't need to ever engage with this sport ever again because what I watched was so horrifying that I never want to see it again. I think it would be the yeah. end of baseball. It's like Sam's article about the 50-inning game yeah. and what would happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I hadn't considered the catchers. Uh, like There are three catchers on some of these rosters, so if you did space them out, you, you have one guy catch games one and, and four and seven if necessary and and then he gets a little bit of a breather in between games <laughs> so get some treatment get some massage I don't know whatever new age therapies teams are trying these days but yeah everyone would just be let in by the end of it it oh, would be yeah. a problem and it would affect everyone it might affect pitchers too but if you did have some pitchers held in reserve, so you just said, hey, you guys nap, you know, stay at the hotel until game three and, and we'll call you if we need you or something, then maybe they wouldn't be quite as worn out and they wouldn't be standing in the field for all of those things. No. So that would be an issue. And it wouldn't be that fun for fans and spectators either. No. It's, I guess it's less baseball than that day when we had eight playoff games and we were all overwhelmed by that. But because those overwhelmed, it did not take a, a full 24 hours as this might if you went seven games. So, <laughs> yeah, I, the only reason I can think of why you'd need to do this is like, uh, I don't know, some, some sort of... Uh, uh, the the pandemic uh, delays the start of the series or something, and, and you need to get it all in before election day or, or something. And it's like, let's play it all in one day. I don't know. At that point, the, the world is in such dire shape that maybe you shouldn't be playing baseball anyway. So, yeah, eh, this would be bad. But you could do it. Like, you could conceivably, like, keep enough players fresh, relatively speaking, to How do it. How many but... would you have to roster, do you think? Just to get it done, not to do it well, 
that's off the table. That isn't an option in this scenario. This is bad baseball. We've entered yeah. we've we've entered that realm. But how many do you think that a team would have to roster in order to complete potentially seven games? Let's assume it goes a full seven mm-hmm. in the space of 24, 36 hours. Yeah. I mean, I think you could conceivably do it with 28. It would be like cruel. No, no <laughs> but you, you couldn't. You could. I, I don't think like, you could. So you wouldn't you'd you'd have to just have each of the starters go deep into games like you'd just have to leave them out there and accept that we're not doing the the pull people after the third time through the order or after the second time through the order thing you're just out there to wear it however you're doing because these are extreme circumstances so like Look, if you give five starts to five different pitchers and you say you're all going at least seven innings and I don't care (laughs) how poorly you're pitching, we're all playing under these rules. So each of these five guys goes seven innings and then you use, you know, one or, or two different relievers to finish each of those games. So you get through game five, let's say, and, and you haven't had to repeat a pitcher and the position players are all exhausted by this point. They'll be slow and they probably won't be hitting very well, but you know, they'll, they'll live probably like they, they won't keel over. I don't think if they are uh, appropriately nourished and hydrated, these are athletes who are probably capable of, of playing a full day of baseball. It's baseball. Like, you know, you're not running constantly. It's still baseball. You get to sit in the dugout and uh, stand around a lot. So I think a catcher would retire. Catchers, catchers are are that's the issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That might be that's like the the bottleneck here is catchers. But if you have three of them and you're okay with playing your third string guy and and starting him in a game, I'm just saying I, I think it could be done. I'm not saying it should be done, but I think it could be done without uh, seriously injuring anyone except us because it would be such bad, boring baseball. And like. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to staff that. This is not. Oh, the, yeah. Like I couldn't. I couldn't. No. You, know. you wouldn't have to have like reaction blogs to game one or whatever because it's like, all right, well, that's over. Time oh, for game two. <laughs> wouldn't, terrible wouldn't have idea. to write gamers. So the, you could you, just save your recaps for after it's all over. No, I I don't care for this at all. <laughs> I, you know, the Fangraph staff is generally like aware of the ebbs and flows of the season. And we all know that there are times a year where we're just going to be tired. We're just going to be tired because of what the baseball schedule demands. And I think we do an okay job of figuring that out in a way that doesn't make anybody hate themselves or Fangraphs or their lives. <laughs> but no. I don't want to tell someone, hey, you know you? You got the 4 a.m. shift. (laughs) No, no. This would be- Nonsense. Hard on everyone. There's no way the union would agree to this as an aside. Oh, no. Absolutely not. I mean, uh, I know that that's not the- (laughs) The the question presupposes nonsense. So I I understand what we're doing here. I get the exercise. But I think think at least one catcher would retire. Uh, Uh I think someone would be badly injured. Could be, yeah. I think that people would stop watching baseball. <laughs> they definitely stop watching the series <laughs> at a certain like, point. Like, could you even sure. lift the trophy at the end? 
<laughs> You'd be that's, like, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's the most exciting part of the season too, when Rob Manfred gets to hand that trophy to some lucky owner <laughs> and that piece of metal. Eventually, so. it does make its way to a player or the the uh, coach, and then you're like, yeah, look at you, you're holding it up. And I think you'd hand it off to a player, and he would just fall over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> onto his side the mvp would be awarded his convertible or monster truck or whatever it is that they give to the mvp he would just curl up inside and take a nap mm-hmm. <laughs> the end uh, of the sport well webb i don't know why you concocted this torture scenario but uh hopefully no one puts you in charge of scheduling but thank you for the question yes <laughs> Yes. Oh, we thank you for the question. But yes. We hate <laughs> and the this. Patreon support. Yes. <laughs> yes. That too. All right. While we were doing our, our Patreon live stream last week, which we will be reprising on Saturday, someone asked us, I think, if like the Rays are the team you would take if you were starting a franchise now or if you want to like have the best future of any baseball team. Quickly, is there any argument for Rays versus Dodgers if we did uh, Betts versus Trout? Is there any scenario where you would take Rays basically based on the fact that they have a really good team now and they have the best farm system according to Fangraph's rankings? It's like the Rays farm system is head and shoulders above any other organizations according to Eric Longenhagen and co. And and the Dodgers are – pretty far down there like uh they look like they're maybe in the the bottom third or so you know not terrible and obviously that is in large part because they have graduated a lot of great young players and they clearly have an an ability to keep developing players but currently at least uh the rays seem to have a better stocked farm they do although i think it's important to acknowledge that a very significant portion of the rays value is locked up in Wander Franco. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. So yeah. part of why the Rays, you know, we have our farm system rankings, they update in real time. So they reflect, you know, future value grade changes. They also reflect graduations. And one of the nice things about that tab is that we break down where the value is coming from. And like $180 million of the Rays farm system value is coming in the fact that they have an, an 80 prospect in Wander Franco. But mm-hmm. I take your point, which is that they are still very good. I have answered this question a couple of times in the last few days, and I don't really see a reason to change it now. I would still take LA because while I think that the Rays are smart and innovative, I think they scout well, I think that they develop players well, I think they do a a really great job of making do with much less in terms of financial resources. I think your margin for error is just a lot larger when you're willing to run a meaningful major league payroll right because if there is a breakdown in the player development pipeline if a guy doesn't pan out the way that you expect him to if somebody gets hurt it really helps to be able to say wow that you know star young pitcher who we expected to help lead our rotation next year needs tommy john so i guess we'll just go out and spend 40 million dollars on the free agent market and bring someone in and Mm -hmm. be you know, not that much worse for wear. So I don't think that when we look at organizations, the ones that get one track in terms of the way they construct their rosters, so become overly reliant on any one mode of player acquisition or talent development, tend to not be able to sustain their success for as long as the organizations that are keen on multiple modes of uh, talent acquisition, free agency being one of them. So Mm -hmm. I would take LA 
Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm totally with you on all of that. I think all of the the smart things that the Rays do, the Dodgers are probably also doing all or most of those. And also they can spend on players and they do spend on players. And so when they get a great homegrown franchise type player, they can keep them. They can keep them around for as long as they want. And the Rays just repeatedly trade those guys, which is how they operate within those ownership-imposed constraints. And they've done a, a great job of it, the baseball operations people. But you have to keep winning those trades over and over and over again. And that's tough to do. It's tough to keep outsmarting other teams. And that's kind of their only route to victory because they don't have the outspending route. So if you have both of those things and all of the resources that the Dodgers have and their history and their stadium and all the things that the Rays lack, I just don't really see a, a strong case for Tampa Bay over the Dodgers. And I think it's just like you can look at how successful the Rays have been, but they just won their third division title and their first since 2010. And the Dodgers just won their eighth in a row. (laughs) Like it's a different level of consistency in success, which I think is what the Dodgers payroll buys them, like some margin for error, as you were saying, like the Rays just don't have that and the Dodgers do. So I think that makes them the better long-term prospect. And I guess if you look in terms of like competition in the division, like the Rays are always going up against the Yankees too. So they're always fighting a financial powerhouse and the Red Sox too. And now the Red Sox are run by a former Rays person. So that kind of eats away at whatever intellectual advantage they had there. And then the Blue Jays are an up and coming team too. The Orioles, they have a long way to go, but, you know, they've uh, adopted these new practices, too. And meanwhile, in the NLS, like you do have the Padres set up to be the rival to the Dodgers for years to come, seemingly. But I don't think there's quite as much competition in the NLS year in and year out that there has been historically in the AL East. So that's just another obstacle. Yeah, I think that that's all right. It's such an interesting, we've talked a lot about some of the ethical considerations for rooting for one franchise over the other, and I think um, did a, a good job of, of making clear that there are um, very few um, ethical means of consuming, mm-hmm. <laughs> totally ethical means of consuming baseball in this sort of existing labor market. I do want to say, though, that I think it's really great that the two teams that Two of the teams that we look at when we're like, hey, th- those those baseball teams, they sure do have some smarties working for them, are also two of the teams that have just committed to maintaining relatively large scouting staffs. Mm-hmm. So we should focus on that part sometimes because mm-hmm. that part is good. That is true. All right. Yeah. So maybe sort of a a long-term mismatch in terms of resources and outlook. But for the next four or five days, it's anyone's game and anyone's series. And fortunately, they will not be playing all of those games on the same day. So we can enjoy them at our leisure. And we'll be back to talk about how those games went next time. Okay, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. As noted, Meg and Sam and I will be doing a Patreon live stream for those at the $10 level a month and up on Saturday during World Series Game 4. You can still get in on that. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and help keep the podcast going 
going while getting themselves access to some perks, such as the aforementioned live stream, Daniel Brennan, James Rosenheim, Eddie Dudek, David Dudley, and Evan Davies. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us via the Patreon site if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful last weekend of baseball in the 2020 season, and we will be back to talk Talk to you early next week. Guys.